So Theo, thank you for joining us today. And I thought I'd start off at the beginning of your career and at the heart of your success, I think it's success, it's um, grit, forthrightness and obviously entrepreneurial talent. Do you think that you're a natural entrepreneur or do you think it's something that can be learned over time? Um, I left school at 16, so I didn't really have any formal um, training uh, as far as uh, being an entrepreneur is concerned. Um, so for me, it has to, had to be a sort of natural um, ability. But I, I think there's an entrepreneur in everybody, to be frank with you. But And, and I sometimes say it's similar to football. I mean, you get football players that play in the Premiership and you get football players that play in the Championship, League One, League Two, National League, but they're all football players. So I think people can do it at different levels and I think it's in all of us. And unless we try, we just really won't know how good we can be. So what do you think it is about yourself in terms of your personality, character traits that make you such a successful businessman? Um, passionate, obsessive, um, detail, uh, very rarely accept the status quo. Um, always looking for a, a way to, to disrupt, uh, including in class, that didn't go down very well. That didn't help with the qualifications either. Um, so always looking for a way of doing something different. And I think the world has, has grown by people challenging status quo and challenging the way we do things and why we do things in a certain way. Has that always been your attitude throughout your career? Or do you think it's changed? Um, I think as I've got older, um, maybe I've mellowed uh, insofar as I've not quite been as, I was going to use the word aggressive. It's not a fair word to say aggressive, but overpowering in my approach to some things and realising that I don't have to use a sledgehammer in everything. Um, but it, it's, it's a passion and desire and a drive and the hunger within, within us. If you haven't got those, then it's a civil service. So you said that you're always looking for new avenues and not accepting the status quo. As a retail man, it seems as though, especially the high street and retail is having a tough time at the moment with the likes of Amazon taking market share. How do you see the future of retail up against these online? Um, it's a very good question. I don't think anybody in this room has got the answer. I don't think anybody uh, outside this room has got the answer. The answer is evolving. Uh, technology is evolving. The disruptors are being disrupted and will continue to do so. So Amazon will be disrupted by new entrants. Uh, Amazon will be disrupted by competition authorities. Um, so there'll be lots of change and change continues. Uh, technology is, we're living in an <coughs> incredible um, period in our history. Those of you that are studying history, if there's any history uh, students here, you know, we go back to the Industrial Revolution and how long did that take to affect the life and the lifestyle of the common man? Hundreds of years. If we look at the development in technology that changes the way you behave, it's probably making you change every couple of years and your habits. So that's, that's the difference. 
and the habits and uh, just flicking through the TV on the way down here and there was a uh, Prime Minister's question time and there was an MP bitching about the banks being bailed out to the Prime Minister and then shutting their branches. And one of the few times that I've agreed with the Prime Minister it was in her answer, well look, if the branches were profitable and people needed to use them, they'd keep them open. But the reality is their only requirement is as a social service. And she didn't go on to say this. She stopped at they'd keep them open. So and she went on to say people have changed their habits and they do their banking online. But we still have people that want to go into a, a branch. And so we've got to decide as, an, as, a, as a nation whether we want to treat that as a social service and fund it accordingly. So is there any world, do you think, over time in which the high street and retail does come out on top and people do make a conscious decision and effort? It, does, doesn't, it doesn't help at the moment. We've got a government that's in paralysis. Uh, they haven't managed the country since they got elected. Since the referendum and the campaigning for the referendum, um, the country has not been managed. So we are now going back three years, just talked about technology and the rate of change in technology and how we change our habits. Just those three years, the world is a very different place to where it was. And legislation has not changed. And there's been very little legislation going through Parliament. So, Legislation is not keeping up with the pace of change. And because of that and the paralysis that we have within government, what we're seeing is we're allowing the high street to have a crash landing as opposed to a soft landing. By, 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 by soft landing, I mean um, allowing it to evolve with the customer's requirements over a period of time. As we all are in retail, so we're all growing in online businesses anyway. But we've all got leases, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years we can't get out of. So if you just allow a crash landing, then all of a sudden you'll see most high street retailers going to loss. Because the customer is not there, legislation is not there. By legislation, uh, at the moment, the government, by changing the tax legislation, could actually uh, generate a huge amount more money for the exchequer and for the social services that we need, police, the NHS, uh, health, um, by changing the way they collect taxes. But instead, we're still collecting taxes from the 1500s in the way that we leaded our, lived our lives. Well, we, we're slightly different. The old internet shop didn't exist. Uh, but we still collect our taxes in that way, which is nuts. So we have a huge increase in rates, physical rates for stores, um, because we need more money for our social services. So the, the checker needs to generate more money. So they, uh, they put rates up tremendously, which puts most of the stores into loss but then we don't tax online. 
which you could argue uses more services and needs and precious uh, facilities that we've got here, resources, than the stores do. Now, they'll have to do that at some stage. You can't keep... There's a decreasing physical cake and there's an increasing physical cake. So, because you need the revenue, you just increase the tax on the decreasing cake and the laws of diminishing returns obviously apply. And then you do not put any taxes on the cake that's growing. Now, any, never mind first year economic student, but any O-level student could tell you that doesn't work. But unfortunately, and the Treasury know that doesn't work, by the way. They're not stupid. Most of them probably went here. Um, uh, some are sniggering at the back. That doesn't make them stupid. Um, but so they're not stupid, they know, but there, there's no will or time to legislate. And that's the damage that's been caused. It's, it, and we may never ever recover from it. You might say, well, once we get through the, the uh, palaver of the uh, exit from the EU, we'll be able then to put that legislation through. But by that time, it might just be too late. So my, my question is twofold. Firstly, aside from tax issues, what else do you think any government could be doing to support the high street? Then secondly, with these online retailers, I think the problem is, is that it requires international cooperation between countries to legislate effectively in order to um, gain revenue off, off from them. So how do you think the government could work within that framework of trying to get international cooperation to regulate multilateral companies effectively? Well, I'll give you the same answer I gave to Chancellor, which is if you're waiting to find common ground unilaterally across all the countries, I would look at recent history of what's happening at the moment, but we can't agree amongst ourselves in Parliament, never mind across all the countries. Um, somebody's going to have to take a lead, and the argument always is, well, if we take the lead, we'll be the first to pay because people will move out of the country. No, they won't. And does it really matter if they do? Because consumers still need to do business. So somebody has to take the lead and, and um, apply the right level of taxation. And if you don't, then we will have the, cr the crash landing and we will lose much of the fabric of so or quite a lot of our society in the process. Do you think people realise that that's what's so important about the high street? Or do you think th the problem lies with consumers and they're so focused on finding the cheapest product and not actually appreciating? Well, there's price point. Look, Nobody who's got physical stores is saying to the government, oh, look, treat us as a special case. You must save the high street. I mean, that's absolute nonsense. That's not what's been said. The high street will only survive if there's a requirement for it. You can't artificially sustain it. But at the same time, you mustn't artificially damage it which is what's happening at the moment. So all we're asking for, is, it's very, very simple, to, for them to act and treat fairly everybody, giving the retailers, of, of the physical retailers, the time to adapt, rather than treat them unfairly and not the time to adapt and also hammer them at the same time. For instance, um, I was talking to one of your colleagues earlier, one of the brands I own is Robert Dyer's. Robert Dyer's is 140 years old, um, ironmongery store. We've got one around the corner from here. 
Anybody been in there? Oh, one person. There's an age demographic showing here, I think. Um, anyway, so 140-year-old armed store. Over the last three years, we've gone from about 2% of our business to late 20s online. So even a 140-year-old armongery store is adapting. But there's only a speed that you can adapt. And at the moment, we're we, we are having to subsidise um, other businesses that don't pay the right level of taxation. Then I wanted to jump up in and ask you a different question. Um, you gave an answer to Business Leader magazine in 2018 to the question, what has been behind your success in business? And you said that it was your dyslexia. Then what was it about being dyslexic that you attribute so much of your success to? Workarounds. Because every time I got into a classroom, I didn't have a bloody clue um, what was going on. Um, and I had to logically find workarounds. The, the way my, my friends uh, did their work, thought through problems and followed through problems as they were taught was alien to me. But I still want, I was incredibly competitive. Uh, I knew I wasn't a dozo because outside <laughs> class, my peer group were in a lot higher grades to me. But they were my peer group. Um, so I had to find different ways of getting over problems. So I would carry a dictionary in my pocket because I couldn't spell. But that slows you down a bit. There was no spell check in those days. Um, I would find different ways of doing maths and equations. Totally different to the way we because I couldn't get my head around the way we were being taught. Uh, so I spent my whole life working out different ways to get over that issue. So when I left school and started work, actually it felt like a bit of a breeze because I could problem solve very, very quickly. And that problem solving is quite a benefit, is quite common in lots and lots of people, not just dyslexics, but people who, for one reason or another, can't uh, enjoy mainstream education. Because they find ways of dealing with things, you adapt. And that was a great benefit. Do you think that there's a way in which mainstream education needs to change and that it tries to shoot on people and it doesn't appreciate the variety in which actually children approach things and do learn and that it leaves a lot of people behind? It, it's, a big it's a big subject. Um, we know that our education system is creaking, it's breaking at the seams. Uh, special needs is very expensive to supply and lo local authorities don't want to actually pay for it. Government doesn't like paying for it. I think for me, we've got to agree what it is we want from education. And not everybody could be highly academic and come to a marvellous institution like this. That doesn't mean they won't play a fantastic part in society. Not everybody um, who has... Uh, been an inspiration and played a great part in society has gone to Russell Group University or gone to university full stop. 
So it's, is it all about exams? Or is it, is it about turning out youngsters that can read well, write well, have the right ethos of life, and, uh, and above all else, confident about the future? Now, I look around me when I've, I've been here a few times, um, and I've enjoyed my time, but when I, I look at you guys as students, you're incredibly confident individuals compared to students at other universities. So do you think that's the fault of, of the education system or the fault of society at large? Or where does, how do you kind of... I, th I think there's, there's a combination, but I think with, as an education system, w one of the things that we need to work towards is bringing people through school and university that have got those soft skills, for use of a better word, but have got those soft skills that can talk to people, look at them in the eye, and, you know, have confidence to express their view. Then I want to pivot to a, a different topic altogether, but related, and talk about your time and your, your nine series on, on Dragon's Den. What was it that first attracted you to joining the show? Um, it's a good question. I, I was just, uh, I'd just finished as chairman of Millwall Football Club. I just stood down after doing eight years on that. Um, I had a great time. Uh, and it's strange, that the minute you leave football, uh, I was still a shopkeeper, I still had my shopkeeping businesses, your phone goes quiet by about 80%. Those are all those horrible people called football agents stop harassing you. Um, and the media and everything else. It so it was incredible. For about a few months, I thought, this is marvellous. Uh, and then I got a call from the BBC, uh, a producer that was working on DD had seen a Back to the Floor programme I did while I was at Millwall, where I went back to the floor and uh, served in the burger bars, changed the light bulbs on the scoreboard, worked in the canteen at the training ground, all those sort of things, did the washing. Um, and he approached me, told me about the series, and... Um, before I knew it, uh, there I was, sitting in a chair, uh, having not done any TV other than that back to the floor before. Um, but it was about serious business. And there was four other people uh, sitting there uh, who were my competition. And I found that quite invigorating and challenging. Uh, and it was, I was talking to some of your colleagues earlier, and, and it was for real. It really was for real. Until we got to know each other, you know, you'd, you'd think we'd come to blows. Because some of the pictures you see on television for three minutes could last for three hours. So if you've got somebody sitting next to you who's asking stupid, dumb questions for, for half an hour, and you're, you're moving buttocks left to right, and you want to get a question in, you think they're dumb, dumb-ass questions anyway, um, and they don't know what they're talking about. Um, and then there's an investment that you, and then you think, well, actually, I'd like to invest in this guy, but there's competition. Then you've got to play your hand at the right time. And at the same time, you don't want to give them answers to questions that you've got that you think are valid. That gives them a clue about where you're thinking. So it was, it was an incredible game of chess that, that went on for, for years. 
So what was your proudest investment? And then also, what was the worst pitch that you came across? Oh my word, <laughs> proudest investment. That's, that's a, uh, I, it's difficult to say what's proudest investment. Uh, I invested in, God knows, I don't know, 30, 40 uh, odd businesses while I was there. And I had the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, the worst was, uh, we did a, we did a sport, we comic reliefs coming up next Friday uh, on the 15th and we did a sports relief special uh, where they decked out the den as a football pitch and um, we, there were people with pictures with sporting products and we agreed that all the profits would go back to comic relief and uh, this guy Jean-Claude came <coughs> and he pitched in those days before the iPhone it looked like a Nokia phone and he managed to download all the ski pistes on there and it could tell you where you were traveling, what speed and everything else. It was a great gadget. And he showed us how it worked and myself and the tall fella invested, agreed to invest, we did the due diligence. We met the lawyer's office, we transferred the money, signed all the paperwork, had a glass of champagne. Um, tall fella went home, I went home, Jean-Claude went to the bank, took the money and fucked off. Yep. Um, now, the thing is, <laughs> you can say I'll never invest in anyone again. But of course, it doesn't work like that. You can never stop people from being dishonest. If people want to be dishonest, they're going to be dishonest. Uh, we nicknamed him Jean Fraud. And um, we found him. And he got prosecuted and got four years. Uh, so the state paid for him as well. Um, so he stole charity money, basically. So that, that wasn't a very nice thing. And of course, the papers got a hold of it and ridiculed us and mocked us. But uh, my view was, look, I'm carrying on investing in people. I can't, if people are going to be dishonest, there's, there's nothing you can do about that. And you can't let that get in the way of investing in, in good people. Uh, so that, that was a, a pretty horrible one. And how did you take the transition into becoming a celebrity businessman as well? Um, it was all strange for all of us. Uh, some embraced it better than others. Um, some courted it and started building up a profile um, and having photographers following them and putting in the papers loving shots of them and their girlfriends walking around the place and looking in each other's eyes. Um, and some of us just got on with it. And, it's n and in fairness, having been chairman of Millwall Football Club for eight years, normally when people stop me on the street, it wasn't to say anything really nice. Um, but it was a different demographic. It was a different type of person that stops you on the street now. And everyone's actually incredibly nice. So it's, it's hard not to, sit, not to enjoy it. Um, yes, if you're in a hurry, it can be irritating. But as long as you're polite to people, they understand. Do you find it difficult? I'm thinking in regards to then with the referendum. Being a celebrity businessman as well, there's a certain pressure on you to say what you think or to was before you could have just taken an opinion but not had to publicly come out about it. Did you find it difficult that there was a kind of expectation? I think that's right but you get the rough of the smooth. The fact that you can get airtime is great. If you didn't, weren't, hadn't been on the TV you wouldn't have got airtime. So you do get airtime and so that gives you a responsibility as well. Uh, so it, it adds pressure on because you now have got responsibility because people want to give you airtime and your opinion counts and people see you in a credible television show um, and as a credible businessman so 
what you say, they expect to be one, credible, but truthful. And, and that's important that you don't mislead, that we leave that for politicians. And then my final question on that, and um, before we hand over to the audience, is that in May 2017, you said that um, Brexit can either be good or bad, but the issues we proved only by the quality of our politicians, nothing else. Given where we're at now, what do you think about the quality of our politicians? That's an interesting one. I might be for answering that throughout to the audience. Um, put your hands up if you think our politicians have dealt with Brexit in a really good way. There's always one. <laughs> Parents in politics? No. Uh, um, so there you are. I think that they, 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 they have been appalling, absolutely shocking. And I think just by the fact that there's only one hand raised, uh, they have been self-centered, putting themselves before the country, putting the party before the country. Um, and I think that's not why they were elected. They were elected as representatives to do what's right for the country. And I'm afraid history will judge them very, very poorly. Thank you. Now let's move over to questions from the floor. If you have a question, you want to raise your hand and wait for the microphone to be brought to you. Do we have a first question? Uh, speaking about Brexit, you were one of the few businessmen who supported the Leave campaign. I was wondering um, where you see it going now. So would you support Theresa May's deal or would you support a no-deal Brexit? Okay, let me put you straight on a couple of things. Uh, quite a few businessmen voted Leave. Uh, I did not support the campaign. Uh, I, never, I never canvassed at all. I was a very reluctant Leaver and I didn't make my mind up till the last week. And I actually did a, a blog all the way through, um, which was the rants of TP, basically, the rants of a shopkeeper. Um, and I didn't campaign for Brexit. I, I, until the last week, I wasn't sure which way I was going to go. Uh, so, so what was the second part of your question? Uh, it's basically saying, would you support Theresa May's deal or would you support no, no deal? No, it's a shocking deal. It's the most outrageous thing that anybody could bring back to Parliament it's a total and utter betrayal of her office. I agree, but then would you support a no deal instead? No. No, no, no. Because quite honestly, if my choice, if my choice, I would have supported no deal if we'd have got our asses into gear two and a half years ago and planned for it. But we didn't. And we're not ready for it. So it's not real option. And anybody who says it is, is an idiot. But they're only, I mean, they're just time party politics. When, when the veneer of last minute comes out, they're all put their hands up and say, yeah, well, we had to say we were ready. Otherwise, we've got no negotiation. But, so we're not ready for it. I would have, but we're not ready for it. So a choice between Theresa May deal, which has got a backstop that ties us up to the EU forever with no negotiation, no strength in negotiation, no leverage, or staying in as we are and still having Article 50 to fall back on in the future, I'd rather stay where I was. I'd rather stay in. So I think what's happening in the running down of the clock 
is the most outrageous thing that anybody could be doing. And just to achieve what she wants to achieve and the Tory party wants to achieve. It's a shocker. So would you support a second referendum then? Um, would I support a second referendum? I, I don't think, frankly, um, we have an option now in where, the, where we've got, there's three votes taking place next week. And uh, one of them is her vote. Uh, I think the other one is to ask for an extension, is it, or something which we blatantly need to do. But the reality is we've, the politicians have let the public down so badly that they can't be trusted now to make the right decision. So if we have, if Susan May says, this is it, chaps, this is all we've got, this is my deal. No deal is not an option. So the option should be her deal, back to the public, or staying. So you're going to ask me what I would vote in that, in that scenario. I would vote to stay in. Because I would rather stay in than be tied forever to uh, an organisation where we would have no influence and never be able to leave. Let's take another question. Happy to hear an alternative opinion on that from anybody in the room. Hi, uh, I'm not going to talk about Brexit. Sorry, um, my name's Ollie. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm just interested in your decision-making process around whether or not to invest in a company. So when you guys are sat there with your notebooks out, you know, you're doing your complex discounted cash flow com you know, computations and... Don't think we were that you. good. Okay, uh, so, but is it all about money or is it um, how much of it is, is instinct that you've garnered over your, over your time? Uh, honestly, I think it changed. Uh, after the first couple of uh, series, we, we all thought we were incredibly clever and we could judge uh, an opportunity. The reality was, uh, after the second series, my whole investment criteria changed. After making a couple of investments and investing in a couple of absolute dozos, uh, who thought they'd won the lottery and they were going to put their feet up, light up a cigar and I was going to give up my job and go and run their little businesses. Uh, and of course I couldn't let them fail because it'd be embarrassing for me. Uh-uh, that's not how life works. Um, I, very, I very quickly came to the conclusion I'd rather invest in a really good person with an average idea than a poor person with a good idea. And that, that was going to be my second question. So thank you very that much. Was, that was, that was, and surprisingly, I did a lot better from there onwards. Thank you. Let's take another question. Yeah, hand across to Ray. Theo, good afternoon. Not sure if this is working. Um, I feel very privileged to have come here this, e this afternoon because my son's brought me as his guest. As you can tell, I'm not the normal age of a Oxford University student. I don't know, you've got mature students here, haven't you? Um, so actually, you're my birthday present. I'm your <laughs> birthday present. my birthday today, and I'm the, I'm the same year as you. Uh, from a very similar background. Minor difference, about uh, 274 million pounds. But <laughs> anyway, my question is, you identify passion and hard work and, and desire and detail. And what would you now have done differently, if anything? And secondly, what's your drive now? Because you've achieved already what most people would not have 
ever imagined they might have achieved. So what's the next objective? Are you um, going to go into politics? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I've got too many principles to do that. Um, well, I've set my retirement date. And I can share it with you now. Death. Uh, I love doing what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And how many years uh, I've got left to be doing it, I don't know. But my God, I'm going to make the most of it. Uh, making money uh, left my psyche as a driver for getting out of bed in the morning a long, long time ago. Because I was very lucky, became comfortable uh, you know, many years ago. Um, so making money now is a scorecard. It's, it's what the accountants add up and the boy done good or the boy didn't do good. Um, it, it's every morning you get up, it's about the challenge. It's about the drive, desire to be the best at who you are and be the best Theo uh, at all times. It's not always easy. Um, and I love business. I love doing what I do, whether it's small businesses or big businesses. It doesn't really matter to me. Talking to people, enjoying. Uh, and that's what's great about my world is I spend time with people. I couldn't sit in running my own little business in my own little room. I'd go gaga. You know, I need to be with people. I need to bounce off people uh, and have that, create that energy. So, um, lots of things. I stepped, I've been a director of Comic Relief for many years and I stepped down last year. Uh, I've done my stint there, although I still support them and my company still support them. And I took on the chancellorship of a university, um, which, uh, Solent University in Southampton, which is the university my girls went to. Uh, so I'm loving doing that. And that's totally out of my comfort zone. I mean, me and education did not get on. The thought of standing on that stage with that, with, with that black cloak and silly hat with loads of gold braid on it is a very strange thing for me. Um, but I am thoroughly enjoying uh, playing an active part as Chancellor, not just turning up on graduation days. So that's a new thing to me. I'm quite passionate about SBS, Small Business Sunday. I run on Twitter on a Sunday. I've got two and a half thousand businesses in that network, small businesses that I support <coughs> through SBS at no cost to them whatsoever. But I managed to get it all sponsored these days. So that's all brilliant. So that's like helping small businesses and helping them grow. Um, so lots of things. I like motor racing. I like fishing. I like sailing. Um, I've got ants in my pants. I cannot sit down and just watch TV or watch a soap or allow at any moment of time to go by wasted. I know we all need to rest. And now and again, I will watch uh, a bit of chewing gum, a box set on, on Netflix or something just to clear your, your head. But I never want to see time wasted. I always want to find some productivity out of what I do. So is there anything you'd do differently? Um, I think it's never look back because it's, it's unrealistic. We're not time lords. We can't change the past. I think we've all learned from the past. We've all had lessons, good, bad and painful. But you should never one look back and you should never, ever, ever let it um, put you off what you're really passionate about. And I think we're going to make, you make mistakes. I, make mis I, st I still make loads of mistakes. I make mistakes every week. I just also make some right decisions as well. 
and hopefully they're better than the mistakes I'll make. So making mistakes is, is a part of life. The person who says they don't make mistakes is someone doesn't make a decision or is a bloody liar. Because you will make mistakes. Just learn from them and move on. You can't turn the bloody clock back. So don't punish yourself for it. Just learn. And don't, oh, but don't make it twice either. I mean, that's just stupid. Um, I mean, yeah, beat yourself up. If you do it twice, give yourself a right good slapping because that is just not acceptable. That is really stupid. Um, so don't do it twice. But if you make a mistake, learn from it and put it away and just move on. Thank you. Yep, to a hand in the back. Uh, hi, I was wondering, do you have any uh, business connections with Cyprus and how do you think the, the, the Cypriot situation affects business and investment in the, in the country? Uh, the Cypriot situation? Um, uh, there's a vision of the north and the south. Okay, right, okay, uh, that's interesting because um, I, I was very honoured to be uh, invited to uh, the Palace on, on Monday um, where we had the Cypriot president there and uh, Prince Charles and it was about getting um, Cypriots together, both north and south. Um, and I have to say, I'm a Cypriot. I don't say I'm a Greek Cypriot. And there's friends of mine there that I've got Turkish origins, but they're Cypriots. Um, so we consider ourselves Cypriots. Uh, I don't know if in, in, in our generation that will change, to be honest with you, um, that division, because there's still a lot of people alive that are very bitter and remember um, some of the issues that happened and the atrocities that, that happened uh, at the time. Uh, I believe that the island will be united at some stage, probably not in my lifetime, which is a shame because I'd love to see it uh, reunited. Uh, but whenever there's been an attempt, it just feels that the population doesn't seem to be um, ready in doing so. And the South, the south has been great. Uh, 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 I mean, Cyprus at the moment is going through an incredibly, even after, I mean, it was five years ago, we had the haircut with the banking crisis there. Uh, since that time, the economy has been stagnated a little bit. Then it's now gr really growing fast. It's one of the fastest growing economies. Lots of investment. And it's not all Russian uh, money laundering either, if anyone says anything, that they, they, they really are dealing with that. So we're seeing some good growth there. Uh, I went to the north side uh, last time I was there and I was really pleasantly surprised to see how much investment has actually gone into that as well. So it's good to see both sides of the island growing. Um, I've got businesses out there I visit, I've board meetings uh, and I consider myself to be a Cypriot. Can we, yeah, the hand in the back. Hi. You said it took you a long time to make a decision about Brexit, but what was it that finally helped you develop your stance on it? Okay, um, I'm going to answer that in a second, but I'm going to ask you a question because I was quite interested to see why you felt the politicians, cause I, just because I missed something, what, why you thought the politicians have done a good job um, I mean, so you blame the British government for the state where we're at now? Not just the government. Okay. Politicians. But the politicians. So Westminster. I, Westminster, sure. Uh, I sort of see it as, I see it from the other side. 
So I, I think the EU has made it really, really difficult uh, for Britain to be able to sort out a plan which sort of helps them leave without severely well, penalising them. What did you expect them? them to do? I mean, sure, but then it's, it's not... I, I don't really see it as the... Obviously, the government could have done a bit more, perhaps, but I, I don't think it's necessarily completely their fault when really? the task that they were set with was sort of insurmountable. Really? Well, well if, if you, you say the EU are naturally going to make it really difficult yes. to leave, then and surely expected it's... We should have expected them to. And anyone who didn't, is beyond naivety, is not a word I'd use. I'd use another word that's very naughty. <laughs> um... Sure, but then surely the situation we're at now, but they should have prepared more for no deal. Yes. I, I'll agree with you on that. Yes. But I, I think the the negotiation and the, the deal that we've got at the moment, it, I don't think it's because of bad negotiating from the UK side. I think it, it was never going to be better. Why? Because the EU would never let it be better. I could have put... A th well, well, you knew that. We knew that. The minute we voted out, which is why I wrote on that night, I wrote those words that you quoted. Whether it's the right decision or wrong decision now will depend. It was tight, and we still people say, oh, overwhelmingly voted leave. No, we didn't. There's a few points in it. And, some of, and then if you look at the population now, half some of the people that voted leave probably died because it was an older uh, um, demographic. But we knew the EU would not allow us just to walk away and take our ball. Uh, without some form of punishment. They actually said as much during the referendum. Uh, but otherwise, everybody would just do the same. So they need to keep it together. So there's always going to be a bloody big fight. And anyone who thought otherwise is an idiot. And to go in thinking, oh, hello, we're Johnny English, we're leaving, you know, is nonsense. And we should have prepared for no, uh, a hard Brexit a no-deal Brexit from day one. All hands to the pumps. Started that. We should never have triggered Article 50. Most ridiculous thing only a child would have done. And secondly, we agreed to negotiate on the terms of the opposition. So it's like, it's like me playing football against you and saying, OK, there's 11 of us. I'm going to get... Uh, you've got to play, sadly, with seven. And actually... The goal that you're in, we're going to make three times the size and I'm going to condense mine to half the size. Right, referee, blow the whistle. I think I've got half a chance of beating you. So we sat there agreeing to negotiate on other people's terms. That's rule one in negotiations. Do not, you must own the agenda. How would we have negotiated on our terms? Uh, I wouldn't have agreed to negotiate on the terms that we agreed on. That is like break up the... How can you agree to pay a price for something that you don't know what you're getting? So you don't know its value. So we agreed that we'd negotiate on the basis of the exit deal first and the divorce money before knowing what we're going to get. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. So we should never agree to those terms in the first place. Now, you must say, well, if you didn't agree, if we didn't agree, they wouldn't start negotiate with us. And I'd say, that's okay. I wouldn't trigger Article 50 and put myself under pressure then. Would you have prepared first and then triggered oh, Article 50? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. I would have said, no trigger Article 50. 
I'm going to start preparing for a hard Brexit. And I don't actually need to do it over two years. You've got two years. I could, we, we could have triggered Article 50 and just leave, right? Whenever we wanted to. So I would say, well, I'm negotiate with you, but not on your terms. In the meantime, I'm preparing to leave. And by the way, if you don't want to negotiate with me and you want to make life difficult, I've got my seats in the EU. I also have a veto. So if you really want to punish me, Mr. Yunker, his words, not mine. That's fine. But I'm not going to be best pleased and I'm not going to really help the EU put through much of its business over the next however. And I'm not going to trigger Article 50 either. So I'm not going to put myself under any pressure. But I'm going to prepare to leave and when I'm ready, I'm going to go. Actually, now, do you want to talk to me and let's do all the negotiations and then when we agree all the negotiations in the round, we'll trigger Article 50 and we're gone. How bloody hard is that? Probably a bit harder than you've made it seem, but maybe a bit easier than what's going on now. A lot easier than what's going on at the moment. It would, but it takes cojones, right? And it takes not having to worry about your MPs back home in the Tory party, who were so desperate to trigger Article 50 and putting them in their place. Uh, do you, following the result of the referendum, do you not think that maybe the MPs sort of felt an obligation to sort of trigger something to show that they're... Well, no, I think their obligation is to deliver, not to show, not to showboat, which is what's been going on. Their obligation is it's the outcome, the delivery. And they should have let the government negotiate on, pro on good terms and in the meantime, run the country. And, uh, uh, and leave, if that's what they believed, they wanted to deliver for the public. But they haven't done. They've let us down. Let us down big time. And yes, rather than Mrs May's deal where we sign an indefinite pair of handcuffs, I would rather stay in the EU and have another go at the future if we decide to leave. But I was a reluctant leaver and it was... I think it was the attitude of the EU and the fact that they want to create a Hunger Games. I mean, it, Brussels is, is the capital, isn't it, in Hunger Games? There's President Snow, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's what it is. And they want an army. They want a one... You can't have economic and monetary union without political union. There would have to be. It's all part of the master plan. They've just over, they've overplayed their hands, over-accelerated it. They should have waited for another generation to die, to be honest with you. And then they might have had to make it happen. But they overplayed it. And at the end of the day, sovereignty for me was the key part. And I certainly wasn't going to have some half-wit who goes around smelling women's hair, um, normally intoxicated, uh, telling, telling us how we should be running our country. It was just ridiculous. Um, you know, it was an economic union that we joined for trade purposes, not a political union. Would you have liked to have been consulted for the Brexit process? It, what do you mean by... Well, as if for in terms of organising, if they were able to delay, rejoin and then maybe leave in 10 years, would you like to be involved in the... I, 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 think, I think whether it's me or there's a lot cleverer people than me, to be honest with you, that would have done a fine job. 
um, that are not in politics. So the answer is there, there was, there probably should have gone to a, a, a different um, set of people to take advice on the negotiations, not politicians or civil servants. Thank you very much. Can let's take another question. Yeah. To that. Sorry if that was a bit harsh, but it was a bit. It was a. J, it was a sort of J, Jane, John and Jane step-by-step uh, uh, step to leaving the EU. Um, you said you don't like to reflect on the past, but um, if you could like talk to your 20-year-old self now, is there any words of advice you'd give? Oh, shit. <laughs> um, I, I think not to be in such a hurry. I was in a hell of a hurry. Uh, and sometimes you just got to st stop and reflect. So, uh, for me, uh, I lived in a tenement block in North London to a one-parent family. So, it, it, you know, there was free school dinners and not a lot, not cash about. I started work at the age of 13, um, as many jobs as I could do. Because I, I had peer pressure, I wanted to own the things that my friends owned. Um, so I was very money orientated at the time, and I was very, very much in a hurry. Um, I think at the age of 20, 21, is probably where I'd achieved a lot, way above my expectations, and believed I could carry on on that basis. And where I have screwed up in the past was, you, you're practically spot on, by the way, um, is just after that time where I just wish I'd reflected a bit more. But that's life. Then let's take another question. Uh, yeah, we've got the hand there. So. Thank you. Um, uh, You've got a whole book of written questions there. <laughs> um, my name is Francis. From your time in the Dragon's Den, uh, you've made several investments. What is the percentage of the investments that succeeded and those that failed? And for those that succeeded, what did you do to ensure that they succeeded on your end? And what kind of help did you render? And you've also talked about uh, composition of a, the founding team being very critical. What are other characteristics that really help in a an entrepreneur venture succeeding? Well, if you talk about the individuals themselves, all the things I said earlier, you know, you, you try to identify, have they got the, the right passion, not, not just blind faith, because blind faith is not very good. You, you've got to have, you know, people would turn up and say, ah, everybody I've shown, I've given this to, loves it. The clue is, is everybody you've given it to. They haven't paid for it. My, all my family, think it's brilliant, they're your family. They're always gonna encourage you. They're always gonna say nice things. They're not gonna say, that's shit. <laughs> I mean, they're not gonna say it. Um, so the three, you know, the three Fs, family, fools and f friends. You know, it is you're not good people to judge your business idea on. Um, so you, you want people who are passionate, uh, I've got the work ethic, the drive, the desire. They don't have to have masses of intellect, but sh should have common sense. 
because business, most of business is common sense. It really is. Most of it is common sense. Um, so all those things were important to me as a, in the person. Did I, do I believe that they had all those things? And did I believe they had the ability to listen? And that was a great thing you could find out in a den because you'd, and I did it quite a few times, and it's great for television, but that's not the reason I did it. Whereas I would be quite harsh, and I've done, I did it on, on, on businesses I invested in because the answer was the right answer. I was harsh about something, and I wanted to see the reaction. And if the reaction was the eyes rolling, and they carried on ignoring what I just said, then I knew they, we weren't going to get on, were we? Because they were never going to listen, and I was never going to ensure they're going to be successful, because unless I went and run their business for them, because they weren't going to listen. So that was a test, and you saw it sometimes, uh, quite clearly, and people said, well, you were incredibly harsh. But I didn't invest, because they rolled their eyelids and carried on going down a track that was blatantly bloody wrong. So you don't want to waste your time. And there was others that when you said something, and they weren't just being political and saying, oh, we'll take that on board. They actually said, God, that, that would be great. That, that, that would really work. So you knew, and then they'd take it further. But we'd have to do this, and then we'd have to do that. And then you see them thinking, thinking it through. So you would mentor people, but you would never do their job for them. And so 50% roughly of all small businesses, startups, fell in the first two years. That's a fact. It's a big, big, big percentage. And why is that? For exactly the reason that people used to stop me in the street and say, where does the BBC find those bloody idiots to put in front of you that don't know their numbers? And I would say, welcome to the great British public of business. Because half of them will fail. Whether they came in the den or not come in the den, once they start their business, half of them are going to fail because they don't know their numbers. And they haven't taken the time to challenge their idea. And not all good ideas are ideas that you can monetize. You can have a brilliant idea. It doesn't mean you're going to make a lot of money from it. So it's those challenges and understanding, and understanding the effects of cash flow, of overtrading. You can carry on losing money for years and years and years and still survive if you've got the cash. But if you haven't got the cash, you're dead. Lack of cash flow. Uh, a lack of profit, rather, is like a cancer. It kills you off slowly. A lack of cash flow is a heart attack. You can't pay the bills at the end of the month. You're dead. There's people understanding that it's not going to be sweetness and light. And things are likely not to work out perfectly as per the business plan. And the reality is they're going to need more money and to build that into their business plan for survival. These are all sound very simple things, but they didn't do them. People didn't do them. So once you've got all those ticked in, you get, you, we're getting there. 
I don't know, I think we've got time for one. Here, if the common sense that you talked yeah. about earlier was that common, there wouldn't be 50% of business going down. It's just not that common. Well, that's it. Common sense is a, is a badly, badly labelled word. Yeah. Common sense is not common. You're 100% right. Uh, I, madness. Well, I think we've got time for one final question, if there is one. Um, what I was just wondering was, given how early you left education, um, and it doesn't appear to have held you back at all, do you think we're all wasting our time here when we could be <laughs> learning about something more useful? Um, God, I'd love to give you the funny answer on that one, but I think it will be reported in the papers, and it would be a joke. Um, uh, absolutely not. Um, whether you're talking about Oxford itself or uh, you go to university as a whole, um, I mean, it, this is an incredible institution and anybody who has actually managed to get in here should treat it as a bloody privilege. Uh, the fact that you're bright enough to get in here and you've been able to finance getting in here and you got accepted in here um, is a great start in life. Absolutely marvellous. So you should be incredibly proud and not waste it. Um, University is not for everybody. Well, blatantly, it wasn't for me. I mean, I couldn't, I, I struggled to uh, read at a, a reasonable speed, and my homework took me all night when my mates would do it in half an hour and be out playing football. But I still wanted to get it done. So it was a lot difficult, it was a lot more difficult for me. University is not for everybody. Uh, apprenticeships are brilliant ideas. Uh, earning while you're learning, brilliant ideas. Uh, there's lots of other ways that you can progress your life. And apprenticeships are not just about going into plumbing or building, by the way. Apprenticeships in business, in starting your own business. All these things are possible outside going to university. University has a big part to play um, for lots and lots of people. And we should encourage it and make it accessible to those that want it. But at the end of the day, there's other people that have other pressures, other requirements, other needs, other traits, other skills, other talents. So well done for being here. Use it wisely. It's a great start. If you screw it up from here, it's your fault. No pressure. Um, so no, no, you're, I'm sure being here is not wasting your time. <laughs> Well, You're relieved now, aren't you? <laughs> Back to the pub, chaps. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But ladies and gentlemen, please do join with me in thanking Theo Kofitas.